This is Hosted Transform Talks. Each week, powerful talks with leaders of transformation from around the world. I think it's really possible that people feel connected to one another and that's maybe good for world peace. <laughs> Outside world doesn't need education that creates the same all the time. It is in need of game changers to be able to adapt themselves to any kind of situation. All of us as human beings ultimately want to be creative and want to make a difference around us, achieve more of our potential. With practical tips and new perspectives on leadership that helps us reinvent ourselves, individuals, organizations and societies. Welcome to another episode of Hosted Transform Talks. My name is Jessica Tangelder, and in this episode, I have the privilege to talk with John Hagel, who is the co-chairman of the Silicon Valley-based research center named Center for the Edge for Deloitte, and has the mission to create awareness about the emerging opportunities that are not on the CEO's agenda, but should be in order to create exponential growth and skill opportunities brought by technology. He's the author of the book, The Power of Pool, how small moves smartly made can set big things in motion. I met John at the Singularity University Summit in Amsterdam in 2014. And for me, he really stood out as a panelist. He was not only talking about progress, technology and business, but he also knew how to bring in the human perspective of things, the importance and our universal need to feel interconnected with one and the other a component that moves beyond technology that also leads to revenue and exponential systemic growth. What can you expect in this episode? Well, in this episode, John and I talk about many things that happens in the workplace, that gets prioritized by CEOs or not, and especially what mind shift is needed in order to create a culture of exponential growth and scaling opportunities. For example, we talk about the urge to shift the mindset from scaling efficiency towards scaling opportunity. And John beautifully illuminates the role of current work environments and how important it is to redesign these work environments and to give the employees a new work experience that actually unlock their potential and make them flourish. John also illuminates the role and the potential of platforms that enables virtual communities to connect with each other around shared interests and learn from each other in the process. Well, all this and much more in this episode. I hope you enjoy it. Hi, John. Welcome to this podcast and thank you so much for taking the time. Where are you calling in from as we speak? Well, I'm actually calling in from my home, which is uh, just north of San Francisco in a town called Tiburon with a beautiful view of the San Francisco Bay. Wow. Well, I think most of us can already be a little bit jealous. However, I'm calling in from Amsterdam and it's the weather, you know, we cannot complain. It's beautiful. Oh. Yeah. So I'm really content. So uh, I already introduced you a little bit and how I got connected to you was in 2014, I was present at the Singularity University Summit in Amsterdam and there were many panelists and speakers and it was a three-day conference and it was really um, astonishing. They were talking a lot about exponential growth, technology, and also how technology can improve the lives of human beings. However, I did miss perspective, the role of, of 
human beings engaging with one and the other, I believe we need a little bit of introspection and how we uh, wire within ourselves, but also with each other when this technology pops in uh, and to get uh, yeah, some more awareness and how we relate with one and the other. And you were the final speaker on that conference and you were actually, the, I think it was even your last sentence that, and this is a really beautiful conference, but in the end, we shouldn't forget we're all human beings and that's the core of the, of the issue still, how we are relating with one and the other. Can you still recall that, that conference and your panel? Yes, no, I was um, uh, highlighting a key theme in the research that we've been doing, which is at one level, we all need to understand the incredible opportunity that's created by exponential technology. But on the other side, we also need to keep in mind that as human beings, we have a need for connection with each other and that we will accomplish a lot more if we can connect with each other in more productive ways than uh, if we stay isolated or just rely on the technology itself. And so that has been a consistent focus of our work is where and how can technology help us to connect and where might it actually undermine our ability to connect. Yeah. So where it's leveraging and where is this actually, yeah, is kind of a scarcity in how we connect with each other. I also recall research that actually emphasizes that because of technology, there is less of a social capital exchange. And with social capital, people that are listening and do not really know what it is, it's about exchanging value, which is often not monetary, but human capital or resources, networks, skills. Do you share that opinion or that article was a research actually? Yeah, I think it's... Um... It's a complicated subject. I think certainly for many of us, we get distracted by the technology. We end up focusing on our smartphone versus the person who's sitting next to us. And so in those regards, definitely it does um, undermine the potential to build more social capital. Uh, on the other side, I, I think certainly the technology is allowing us to connect with each other across the world. Right now, <laughs> much richer, much richer, like right now, in much richer ways, and so I, I think there again, it's it's a complicated subject, and, and I think it, it can play both ways for sure. Yeah, yeah, beautiful. So before, I would like to know a little bit more about the Center for the Edge in in Silicon Valley and and the book you've written, Power of Pool. I'm actually ask everyone because I'm a really curious person. <laughs> But, but John, why do you do what you do? What brought you there? What is your connecting the dots journey? Or maybe it is not like that at all. <laughs> I, there's only one constant in my career in life, which was uh, uh, something I learned very early in life, which is to follow your passion. Just be true to yourself and figure out what really excites you and what keep you going and motivate you. And for me, it, there have been many things over my life that have, have done that. But when I look at the, the theme that comes across through all the various activities, it's I've always been excited about the opportunity to create platforms that will enhance human potential, that will help us to become much more than we already are and uh, enable us to connect more effectively with each other. And when the internet came along, 
Um, I wrote a book actually more than 20 years ago now, all, about 20 years ago, called Net Gain, which was all about the power of the internet to help us to uh, establish virtual communities where we could connect with each other around shared interests and learn from each other in the process. And so um, the opportunity to, I was approached to help build a research center at Deloitte and the opportunity was to focus on emerging opportunities that are not yet on the CEO's agenda, but could be, and to do the research required to persuade the CEO to put it on their agenda. And so that, to me, was an opportunity, again, to continue to explore the platforms that, again, most executives still don't truly understand, but really do have the potential to enhance us all as human beings, as well as create more performance opportunity for companies and other institutions. So. And why do you think they don't really understand the potential or, I don't know, maybe they're scared or, I don't know, what do you think? Uh, well, there, there are many factors. I think, you know, at the end of the day, I've come to believe that the most significant issue is mindset, the beliefs that people have about what's required for success. You know, historically, I think for more than a century now, we've had a belief about business, which is, you know, perhaps oversimplified, but we captured in the term scalable efficiency. The reason you have large companies is to have more efficient operations, cut costs because you're, you're, you have more scale. And scalable efficiency requires uh, a high degree of predictability. You need to be able to predict accurately what the demand is so that you can mobilize resources to, to address that demand. And then you need to tightly specify all the activities so it's done in the most efficient way possible. You need to standardize the activities so they're done in the same efficient way anywhere in the company. And so, again, at one level, that has driven enormous success. I mean, I believe all the large companies we have today around the world were built around this model of scalable efficiency. And the question on the table is, given all this new technology that's available, is that the most effective way to organize? Is that the most productive way to organize? And we believe that it's not and uh, that it will challenge virtually everything in terms of how we organize, how we operate on a day-to-day -day basis, the kinds of strategies we pursue. So it, it creates opportunity, but we have to move away from that mindset of scalable efficiency in order to in order to really exploit the opportunity. Interesting. Yeah, I often say, well, I'm actually at the moment launching a platform, so I'm really glad you bring this up. So I'm on a good path in that sense. And okay. I connect leaders of transformation, and they are often coaches, trainers, facilitators, but also executives. And I can actually see, oh, yeah, the executives are not like the front runners of the platform. Uh, I don't know, maybe because of time or, yeah, they still find it strange to be online again as they feel that they have to be in the company and i often talk about uh the, yeah having an agile mindset or a supportive mindset to create a supportive work environment but also in the agile in the sense that you can embrace uncertainty and work in an environment with a lot of unpredictable situations 
and work in a more iterative way. And I'm sure you're familiar with all these terminologies. <laughs> and again, I don't mean it in the, in the techie way because you have, uh, you know, Agile is, of course, based on the software uh, technology from Toyota. Do I say that correctly? Yeah. So I yeah. mean it from a human-centered perspective. Human-centered leadership comes from within. And because it comes from within, you're more, yeah, it's, it's more easy to pivot in the moment because you feel empowered. So you can do that. And... Do you have a certain approach within Deloitte, the center of for the edge in Silicon Valley, that you that you train people, or do you advise them, or is there some method or approach that you use? Oh, there are a lot of methods and approaches. It depends on the context and the situation. I mean, one of the things that I think is Singularity University does particularly well is to help build awareness of the new technologies and some of their capabilities and and in particular to drive home the message that this is not out in some distant future but it's actually happening today around us and so it's something that we need to address in the moment versus say you know we'll, we'll figure it out five years from now and i think that in beyond that uh, so first challenge i think we see is is the need to increase awareness of what all this technology enables. But then I think there's a process. One of the techniques that we uh, adopted is um, actually used by a lot of Silicon Valley technology companies, and they call it the zoom out, zoom in approach to strategy. And basically what they do is they focus on two time horizons. One is a 10 to 20 year time horizon, and, and that's the zoom out. And there the question is 10 to 20 years from now, what will our market or industry look like? And then what kind of company will we need to be in order to be successful? And then there's a zoom in, which goes to a very different time horizon, which is six to 12 months. And on that time horizon, the questions are, what are the two or three business initiatives? No more. We have to align around the most important near-term initiatives. What are the two or three? Do they have a critical mass of resources? Because often in large companies, we spread ourselves very thin across so many different fronts that nothing has a critical mass. So do we have a critical mass of resource? And at the end of six to 12 months, what are the metrics that would tell us whether we've succeeded or not, so that we can learn from those short-term initiatives. But in our experience, it helps to, first of all, pull people out of their comfort zone in terms of the traditional assumptions about how business is done versus how it will be done in the future, and then pulls back to very tangible near-term action. So it's not just some kind of theoretical futures exercise. It has near-term implications in terms of how you're going to focus your resources in the short term. Yeah. So I think that can be a very powerful technique to help so, mobilize. So if I, if I understand it correctly, because what you just mentioned, the 6 to 12 month approach uh, to get a critical mass and to really... Uh, be near to the process and to be able to to you know catch what is what is working and not that actually means that you have to be more engaged with the work environment or world around you than ever i mean i see sometimes some pictures of people working in cubes <laughs> for me that would be so claustrophobic i've been in this situation once and i uh, couldn't stand it so is that 
then this area is like good news for people that love to improvise, to pivot, to be innovators uh, like me that love, loves adventure and, and new things and dare to step into their potential and go for their passion. And at the same time, it's it's bad news for people that may be a little bit more introvert and, and risk assertive and maybe controllers. Or is it is that too simplistic? You know, my belief is that all of us as human beings ultimately want to be creative and want to have, make a difference around us uh, and tap into our imagination, achieve more of our potential, what we're capable of. I think many of us have become very risk averse because our institutions have kind of trained us on that. I mean, I often say that our certainly the his, historical evidence in the U.S. at least is the public school system was explicitly designed to take children who had enormous passion, curiosity, imagination, and teach them how to follow orders, how to, how to take the examinations, demonstrate that they've learned what they need to learn, and make them ready for the, the cubicles in the companies or the factories that they were going to be graduating into. And so, again, it ultimately is a open right, debate. To avoid mistakes, huh? Yeah. No, exactly. Yeah. Failure is not failure is not tolerated. You need to deliver, you know, predictably and reliably. And so, and now so. we're talking about smart failure and it to be the key for innovation. It's no, I, yeah, it's one of the things that I, I focus on a lot with large companies is when you say failure is not an option which they say quite frequently because they want their workers to all understand that. And at the same time, they talk about the need to become more innovative. Well, wait a minute. There's a contradiction <laughs> here. Innovation well, is not always successful. Yeah. Uh, there's actually a very high failure rate in, in innovation initiatives. And so if you can't create environments where failure is not only tolerated but encouraged, you're not going to be innovative. Yeah, I remember in, in my first job, this woman was really with her finger pointing at me. Here we do not make mistakes because we cannot afford them. And I was like, whoa, <laughs> I'm still frozen now. You know, now I'm afraid to do anything. So uh, it's kind of the reverse culture you're creating, I guess. No, well, it reinforces that risk averseness you talked about earlier. Yeah, yeah. It's a message. Can't, so can't. I was, I was also, of course, watching. I did, I did some research before calling with you, of course, and uh, I saw some interesting videos uh, from uh, the Singularity University. Uh, I think it was um, a conference in the Netherlands with CEOs uh, invited. They were also talking about organizing ourselves differently, etc. And, and maybe I'm going to be a little bit advocate's devil here. Um, but what I what my, what caught my attention is that this potential we have here with the technology and exponential growth, it was mostly focused on, on revenue. And secondly, they were talking about, okay, we have to organize ourselves differently, internally and externally. I think the prince was even there to, to emphasize that. Mm. Um, but they were focused on networks. And it's, I mean, that's, I, I see that, that's, that's not the issue, but I personally would love to see them to also refer to the outer and inner boundaries that internally live within us to, to, yeah, to not seek for failure, for example, or to, 
to not connect with someone because he or she is from a different work culture or ethnical background or education system. Because, uh, yeah, nowadays urbanization is in place. There's more cultural uh, melting pots <laughs> uh, in every city than, than ever. So we do not have time to go on a team building trip for, for 10 weeks or whatever and, and, and do, some, uh, do some exercises with one or the other. So we have to become more aware about our judgments towards one and the other and to also step over, yeah, to go beyond the fear we have and even to admit that you do not know, which can give a lot of air and, and room for people to maneuver at the same time. So uh, you were there at that conference. Maybe you know to which one I refer. There's a YouTube movie about it. And um, do you feel that this is... This is being discussed, or is there a dialogue about this, about our internal connection with ourselves and then therefore with others? I don't, I don't think, think there's, there's enough of a dialogue on that. I think that uh, there's generally a focus, and perhaps understandably, one of the issues that we highlight is the psychology of mounting pressure. What happens when you're experiencing more and more pressure, as we believe companies are, as well as individuals. And there does tend to, you tend to shrink your time horizon, focus on a shorter term because there's so much pressure, you can't afford to think about the future. Because you focus on the short term, you tend to um, adopt what what is known as a zero-sum view of the world, which is win-lose. Uh, if, if you win, I lose, and vice versa. And if you're in that kind of world that trust actually becomes harder and harder to maintain because uh, it's win-lose situation and you may seem like a nice person but at the end of the day only one of us is going to get these resources so I can't afford to trust you and so it, it, it moves us into a mindset again which is very short term and very focused on the economics and I think it there, there's a uh, an unfortunate uh, way that many executives frame, you know, I either focus on the individual or I focus on the, the needs of the company. It's kind of treated as either or versus actually if I focus on the needs of the individual, I will have a much more successful and profitable company uh, in, in the result. And, and again, it goes back a bit to the scalable efficiency mindset. In scalable efficiency, the role of the human being is to fit into the pre-assigned role. You've given a job description, you've given a process manual that tells you in great detail every activity you need to do, and your job is to fit in. Versus, I think, in the, in the world that we're moving into, the, uh, the model is much more around what we would describe as scalable learning. How do we help each other to learn faster and accelerate performance improvement more rapidly? And in that context, it's all about the individual. We need to organize around the individual. We need to figure out what kind of organization would help each of us to learn faster because learning ultimately is very much embedded in, in the human being. And so it, it completely flips the, um, the orientation. Yeah, and I think 
attributed to that also being more open for job migration and not for human resource. I, I never really understood the concept of human resource management. <laughs> I'm like, <laughs> what are those people doing there? Of course, I have a grasp, but I think uh, that should be everywhere in the organization. Everyone should, you know, uh, empower one and the other. I mean, not 24-7, we're all human beings and of, so often we are in our little tunnels. But it, just by simple asking powerful questions or when you're, for example, I had to make a lot of minutes and I'm really bad in writing down what people exactly say because I'm kind of a philosophical person. So I try to make connections and I already think of new things, of innovations. And this is not what you should do when you just have to, you know, write down what's being said. And I feel really unfortunate that, you know, my experience of working in big organizations like the United Nations and also the Ministry of Health in the Netherlands was not a good experience for me, at least, because there was no way that you could just break open your profile and say, hey, is anyone else that is into that and I can do something else or let's swap a little bit here. What's what's possible? Yeah. So. Going uh, a little bit to the book that you've written, uh, The Power of Pool, How Small Moves, Smartly Made, Can Set Big Things in Motion. You already mentioned a little bit about platforms, and now again also that it's not so much about what is already what is already created as profiles in the company, but what we can, by, by pulling resources towards us, what we can create on demand. Uh, how is that working out at the moment? Are you, are you using this strategy as well at the center for the edge in Cynical Valley for Deloitte? Yes, and I think we, we try to practice what we preach on, on those kinds of things. We uh, are actually a pretty small group within uh, within the uh, Deloitte organization uh, in, in Silicon Valley when we have five full-time people, but we invest a lot of time and effort to connect more broadly with resources and people in many different diverse institutions. So everything from Silicon Valley startups to Singularity University to there's a group called Santa Fe Institute, which uh, brings together leading edge academics around the uh, studying complex adaptive systems, the MIT Media Lab in the East Coast. So we built relationships with all those organizations and people in an effort to, again, connect to a lot of interesting thinking and and insight that's often not very conventional business thinking, but could be very useful in the business context if it were understood there. Okay, and and you mentioned that uh, we try to identify uh, emerging business opportunities that should be on the CEO agenda, but are not, and we try to persuade to them to get them on the agenda are there certain specific topics that that you can give as an example or um sure i I think um one of them is uh something that we've talked about in in terms of work environment redesign Uh, and what we mean by that is taking design thinking and design methodologies that we use so effectively to redesign products for for customers uh, redesign the customer experience to make it more valuable to the customer. Our, our view is there's an opportunity to apply that design methodology to ourselves, to our work environments, and to take as the primary goal of the design, of the redesign, to say, 
how could we accelerate learning and performance improvement in the work environment? What would that work environment look like? And not just the physical environment, the layout of the offices and the desks, but also the virtual environment, the platforms and tools that uh, uh, workers interact with, uh, management systems like compensation, the entire worker experience. How would we redesign that if our primary goal were to accelerate performance improvement? And, and often we, what you see, at least in the Netherlands, it's like, yeah, we need, a, we need to have an open workspace. And then they have an open workspace and people get, you know, their fixed spaces in the open workspace or they feel frustrated that their books are not there and etc. Did you already grasp some answers? What works? Are there already some outcome? Yeah, well, the interesting thing, again, that, um, in keeping with our, with our charter, we actually could not find a single company that had actually attempted this. So it reinforced our sense that this is not yet on the agenda. Uh, what we found were many companies had done slices of the work environment, little particular elements of the work environment, redesigned them in an effort to accelerate performance improvement. And so we ended up with 75 case studies of companies that had done these these slices and ended up identifying nine design principles that we believe are particularly effective or powerful in terms of redesigning a work environment to accelerate performance improvement. So, Wow, interesting. Can you shed light a little bit on, on a few principles, what, what really um, got, got your uh, attention? Yeah, there, there are a lot. I mean, part of it is uh, it's more of a cultural question of uh, inviting people to ask for help. I mean, one of the things, so one example of a company that we looked at is uh, a, a company called LiveOps that basically does customer call center operations on an outsourced basis for other large companies. And the interesting thing was many interesting things about the company, including the fact that all their workers work from home. They have 20,000 workers and they have no call center. They have people working from their home. But they, they took inspiration from an online video game called World of Warcraft and basically created performance dashboards to give real-time feedback to all their workers in terms of how they were doing. But again, back to back to this principle, it was that they did not use this dashboard as an instrument of punishment to say, you know, you're falling behind on these dimensions. Yeah. yeah, they said, ask for help. If you are having a performance issue, we're going to create this online discussion forum. Go in and say, you know, I'm having trouble handling this kind of customer call and this performance dimension. Does anybody have any ideas? Can anybody help me? And more importantly, they started to watch, recognize and reward the other workers who were emerging as helpers and coaches to the workers with performance issues. So what they were doing was creating a very powerful peer-to-peer -peer learning environment where you could connect whenever you needed help to get that help. Yeah, this is actually what I personally, I mean, I don't want to talk about my company too much, but it really resonates. That's why I'm, I'm mentioning it, that with this platform, it's about peer-to-peer -peer learning because 
First of all, I do not have the time to answer all the questions. And second of all, I don't know the answer of all these questions. And <laughs> it's way better to co-create some kind of answer or options that people could pilot themselves and then give feedback again about what works or not. And also asking for help. Well, I work with the host principle and the H is for human energy, positive work environment, and the O is for openness to connect, and the S is for sharing resources, network skills, and knowledge in order for the T to transform people, teams, organizations, and societies. I am a systemic thinker, so <laughs> that's why it's pretty big, but still it feels right and, and, and works. And one of the biggest insight of myself, but also people that join these sessions, is that Wow, it's so difficult for people to ask for help. We all love to help because it gives some of some sense of control maybe or it even empowers you because you know you feel util. But to really think of a helping question is often already difficult for people and yeah, the beautiful example about the uh, Warcraft game. I mean, it's not rocket science. It's just a uh, yeah, giving them the space to create that, to be vulnerable, but also to make it a status quo, that it's, everyone is asking for help. It's not just you. Right. So that's beautiful to create that culture. I already mentioned that I'm a, a little bit of a systemic thinker, and I, I approach this transformation from an individual team, organizational and, and, and societal level. And I think as we as individuals, if we are empowered, I mean, I take myself to any work situation and I take myself into society. So I don't really see a split personally. So how do you perceive transformation? I mean, it's a big word and a theme you hear a lot. How does it resonate with you? Well, I think it's definitely uh, increasingly a requirement. I, you know, The Power of Pull, the book that I wrote, talks about the big shift which is the fundamental changes that are going on in the global business landscape. And our belief is that to be successful in this big shift, we ultimately will have to transform our organizations in fundamental ways. The big challenge we see with transformation is, uh, particularly for large existing organizations, is that uh, they have enormously powerful immune systems and antibodies that are very effective in resisting change and crushing it at the first sign that it might appear. And so the, the challenge is how do you go about transformation in a way that will not excite the immune system or the antibodies? And in that context, I've been very inspired by um, a book that has many applications called The Art of War. And one of the key... Yeah. One of the key messages in the art of war is if you have to engage the enemy in battle, you've already lost the war. So the broad principle that we've developed is to drive transformation. Don't try to transform the core of the organization that already exists. Focus on finding an edge that today is relatively modest in, in terms of the overall operation of the organization but that has the potential to scale extremely rapidly to the point where it could become the new core of the organization and use that edge to drive the transformation that's necessary to demonstrate a fundamentally different way of operating 
and the results that you can achieve with that with that approach so yeah i'm so happy you bring that up actually because you know i often attract non-designated leaders that I see as leader, but they do not have the, you know, the formal role in the organization. And because they have way more credibility as I have as a trainer, because they work there for 10 years and they way more patient than I am, they can actually be a beautiful spokesperson or create little coalitions or communities within the organization. Let's try to transform the organizations by including people from within the organization on different various positions and often that are not the executives or managers unfortunately sometimes but it's pretty scarce still no it is and i think part of the value is identifying those people and helping to connect them with each other because often they aren't aware of each other's existence and yeah. so and and they can get enormous reinforcement if they know there are others who have the same kind of conviction and, and beliefs they do and they can learn from each other in terms of what's working what's not working so I, i'm a strong believer that one of the key priorities is to help connect those who are open to change as, as early as possible do you have any suggestions how you could find those people i actually pull them because of, you know, I have my brand, people are interested or not, and I call them leaders of transformation, and I know I don't take the easy way, <laughs> uh, <laughs> because I know it, you cannot just fix a culture, and then people resonate with it or not, but how can people within organizations kind of have a sense, is there, do you have any experience with that? Yeah, I, you know, I do, I think there's, um, and it goes to a, another uh, topic, which is the, the role of leaders in in this time of rapid change. And now in the past, in the scalable efficiency world, the mark of a strong leader was someone who had all the answers. You know, no matter what the question, you can count on the leader to have the answer, to tell you what needs to be done. And that's a strong leader. Our belief is that in this transformation that we're going through, the mark of a strong leader will be the one who has the best questions, the most exciting questions. And will say, I don't have the answers. I don't know. I need help. <laughs> Are you willing to help? Can you help? And so it, by posing the questions, and if they, if they can demonstrate how important these questions are, that they, if, if we could find an answer, it would make a big difference. It, it will start to excite the people already in the organization who want to make a difference and want to make a change. And so that you'll pull them to you with those questions, but you have to be vocal about it and, and, and communicate it to the organization so that they know that you're asking. I think that can be a very powerful way to start to identify who's really uh, willing and ready to take on some big new challenges. Yeah, just just by doing it, right? And yeah. Rephrase it in the sense that to give control and give leadership to your staff members, team members, uh, instead of holding it. And meanwhile, you feel really insecure because you can never serve all all the people around you. So why not be just transparent about that? And uh, I'm actually joining in October a conference which is called the Urge of uh, Facilitative Leadership. So in a sense, of course, that's why I started Host to Transform, 
I see leaders as hosts of transformation and you have several tools for it. And one of, of these are most probably power questions and leave the answers there and co-create that together. And if it's wrong, then at least we're all in the same boat, you know, there's no <laughs> finger pointing or whatever. And, and you think of a next best opportunity or plan. No, and it, your comment triggers another way we frame the transition in leadership is in in the scalable efficiency world, the measure of a, a strong leader with how many followers they have. Our belief is the new generation of leadership will be measured by how many leaders they can create um, as opposed to followers. <laughs> it's yeah. just, you, you want to be able to give encouragement and, and tools to the people who are attracted to your uh, questions to help them become more successful and, and take more initiative on their own and and ultimately become leaders on their own so that they're they're now attracting a whole group of people who want to contribute to their efforts. So you become kind of invisible as a leader, more servant, and people from the outside couldn't even tell you're a leader because you're not screaming around and tell people what to execute and how to delegate and all that. Two, two more interesting questions, maybe. What is your <coughs> advice uh, for designated leaders of today? Oh, you already tapped into that a little bit by saying, well, not keeping the control, not keeping the leadership. And, and maybe it sounds really easy for me to say. And I yesterday I had a conversation with a woman. That, uh, she's also a professor at the university. Uh, I think it's Berkeley. And I'm also a lecturer. And for me, it's really nice to also say sometimes, I don't know, what do you think? So even for a lecture, you can really see it works. Just giving the trust to the students is already groundbreaking, you know, like, wow, we can just take the stage and be be ourselves. And that's beautiful to see. However, I can imagine when you're a big company or there's a lot of things at stake. And also when I'm stressed, I also get back into my tunnel sometimes but anyway, what the professor was saying as well, the life-work balance, especially in San Francisco or maybe even New York, is is maybe not really balanced. And the house rates are immensely. So if you lose your job or if something goes wrong, then, yeah, there's no social net or there's no second option. This also creates some, yeah, sense of fear, fear of course. And the same in the Netherlands, big companies where people already used to a certain lifestyle and used to work for certain KPIs and get their bonuses or something, it's not really an option to go back. So how do you deal with that as a, as a leader? Like maybe it's a strange question, but I'm just curious if you have been in that situation or if notifying that. You mean in terms of dealing with the fear or? Yeah, that, that the, the context or the structure of the organization is already so created in a way that it actually creates fear within people because they're so dependent on the structure, money-wise and <clears throat> also ego-wise and all that. Yeah, I think that, again, it's a big issue given our, our view that a lot of the early stage of this big shift is mounting performance pressure on everyone. It does create this this sense of fear and risk averseness that can be very dysfunctional. Um, and I think the role of the leader is uh, to inspire. I mean, I think that one of the big issues is we don't have enough of a 
focus on the opportunities ahead. And I think leaders can be very energizing and inspiring if they focus people on what they could create together. And yes, we, we, we may not succeed in, in the first effort or several efforts, but it's worth persisting after. And and I think it, it can help people to move out of that risk averseness, fear kind of, of mindset and say, this is really worth going after. And yes, there are risks, but I've got a community of people who are with me, who are wanting to do this together. And so I think that can be very helpful in terms of communicating to people there's something out there. I think part of it, too, is too often, and it's one of one of the issues I potentially have with some of the sprint or agile mindset, which is short, you know, runs at things and then iterating around it, which at one level is, is very good and very helpful. But the more you go into a sprint kind of mindset, the more I, I believe there's a tendency to lose that sense of balance, you know okay, I won't see my family, but this is just for the next week until this sprint is over. And, oh, my God, there's another sprint after that. Versus, I think, positioning this much more as a marathon Mm -hmm. where the opportunity is a very long-term opportunity. It's going to take a long time to fully achieve, but it's worth going after. And if it's a marathon, you have to pace yourself. You have to be much more careful about maintaining your energy, maintaining your connections in ways that will support you for that long haul versus, you know, saying, okay, it's just for this week or whatever. And uh, so, yeah, beautiful. So also too, there's also urge for more visionary leaders in that sense that see the dot on the horizon instead (laughs) of the sprint. Yeah. Stresses everyone out to, to, uh, to work 20, 20 hours a, a day or so. Exactly. Beautiful. So thank you so much for your contribution. And and I was wondering, is there something else you would like to wrap up with? Maybe I have written down the biggest challenge of organizations today or some latest insight you got that really helped you or your environment. Anyone you could help uh, the listeners with or or maybe a call to action? Ah, boy. Uh, there are many things. Obviously, we've uh, been doing a lot of work in many different domains. I, you know, I think one of one of the most important elements, and it's become a key theme in our work, the notion that all of us as individuals, as human beings, need to become more connected to our passion. And I think that, again, in a world of mounting pressure, if you're if you're experiencing pressure and not passionate about the work you're doing, you will experience it as stress and ultimately burnout and dropout. If you're really passionate about the work, actually that mounting pressure becomes exciting. Mm-hmm. You know, this is a chance for me to get to a new level of impact and performance. And I think that, again, in, in the world of scalable efficiency, we've trained people, you know, if you have a passion, it's okay to pursue it after hours, you know, <laughs> sports team or a hobby. Yeah. Just don't bring it into work. Um, and the notion that you go to work to get a paycheck and you, uh, if you have passion, you do it in your personal time. 
our belief is that's going to become more and more obsolete and that the successful people will be those who manage to integrate their work with their passion and don't stop until they find a passion and until they find a way to make a living around that passion. Beautiful. And do you think companies realize for, for their employees to give them the space to illuminate that passion or to seek it? I Personally, I call it purpose. Yeah. Also to have a mission and to know what your talent is and have experience in which kind of work context you flourish. Uh, nine to five is not my thing. Working in one, one physical context is also not my thing. I had to experience that, you know, I didn't know that when I left university. So do you think organizations give that free space for people to explore or is Deloitte doing that or is, is, is there more ear for it? Well, there's certainly more need for it. I would say in most, most organizations, most companies, passion is, well, first of all, when I talk to a lot of leaders about passion, they, their interpretation is, oh, that's really good. I, you know, somebody who will work nights and weekends on their assigned tasks, that's passion. And I say, well, no, actually, that's not passion. <laughs> passion is, is connecting with something that really motivates you, and it's it may not be your particular assigned task. And, and that becomes very suspect because, again, you're not going to be predictable and reliable. If you're passionate, you're going to be wanting, you know, some new, new challenge emerges. You want to go pursue that. And so it's very suspect. And at least based on the, the work we've done, we've surveyed the U.S. workforce. And our finding is that at best, only 12% of workers have the kind of passion that we think is required for success. And so there's a very large portion of the workforce that still needs to connect with passion and pursue it. And that excludes entrepreneurs? Like no, well, it's, it's the entire workforce. Okay, I mean, interesting thing, we couldn't find a distinct pattern. We looked at it by size of company and passion levels were evenly distributed, whether you're a very large company or a very small company. Oh, interesting. Uh, because I often train entrepreneurs and, and they want to think of, uh, oh, how can I design my next innovative business or product or service and how can I scale? But I always say, wait, 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 wait. Let's first go to your purpose or passion. Let's eliminate that because this is your foundation. You know, if you don't get it now, then you get what you say, either a burnout or you attract the wrong people you actually do not really want to work with or... You create a lifestyle that does not fit with you. So I really, really resonate with that. I'm so happy that you, you brought that in. Thank you, John. I hope uh, we get another opportunity to meet. I think I will be in San Francisco this year. Uh, I hope before 2017, actually. And thank you so much for your time. Well, I appreciate the opportunity to, to speak with you and to share some of their perspectives. Thank you. Just like to remind you, as always, you can find show notes, links to resources, and all sorts of things we talked about at hostetransform.com forward slash podcast. Also, do engage in our ongoing conversation by leaving a comment and share your thoughts. Hey there, a final note before you take off. Did you hear about the Weekly Wisdom? It's a short email I send out just before the weekend. It provides you of hands-on and mindful next-level leadership practices that empowers you to unlock 
transformation in our fast-changing world. With ease and a solo fun, you can help people to gain clarity in their future. You can subscribe via hosetransform.com. I will spell it out for you. H-O-S-T-O-T-R-A-N-S-F-O-R-M.com. And you will receive the very next one. And when you sign up, I hope you enjoy it.